did you hear that Trump got depressed and stopped eating for a bit after his failed January 6th coup? <laughs> All those hamburgers and french fries gone to waste and he didn't lose a single pound even! <laughs> I'm heartbroken, how will I ever recover? <laughs> Welcome to PBS. I'm Sandra, and this episode, for the first time in our podcast history, I'm recording alone. Tyler had a family emergency, a very serious situation, so please send positive vibes his way. Don't worry, he'll be back in time for next week's episode, hopefully. But today you'll only get me, which is fine, because I'm amazing, I'm a light upon this earth, <laughs> and so very modest too. <laughs> I'm obviously kidding. So we are talking about Trump and why he's not only a danger to the United States and our democracy, but also a danger to the world. And because I was born in Romania and lived part of my life under a dictatorship, I think the best way to go about this subject is to tell you guys some personal stories, make some analogies and point out some striking similarities between what Nicolae Ceausescu did in my native country, the aftermath of his policies, what some other dictators did too, and what Trump has done and plans to do here in the United States. There will be some sad, serious stories from that time, like what happened when abortions were banned in Romania, how my dad, who was a doctor, was taken in for questioning by the security services, and later reassigned to a hospital outside Bucharest, which put a lot of strain on my parents' relationship. But there will also be some lighter, funnier stories. For example, under Ceausescu, people were allowed to drive their cars only every other week, alternately, according to their license plate numbers. If you had even numbers at the end of your license plate, you could drive during the weekend. If you had uneven numbers, you could only drive from Monday to Friday. So not only it was more complicated to plan a vacation or weekend activities, but people, families had to kind of make friends with people who had similar matching plate numbers, even or uneven, so that they could go places together, right? It was crazy and it was all because of oil, you know, petrol, well, gas shortages, right? And there were two or three types of cars all horrible. Oh my god, my grandfather had an olive-colored Lada, just Google LADA, communist car. I mean, they were horrendous looking, and if you were a taller adult, your head touched the ceiling of the car. My dad had a yellow Dacia. This one was also like, I mean, I don't know how to describe these cars. You gotta Google them, right? And there was also a car named Aro, A-R-O, that was like the Romanian version of an off-road, I guess. And it looked like something out of the fleece. <laughs> oh, and I must mention plastic shopping bags. Before we get to the orange Jesus, I must mention plastic shopping bags, especially those with any Western brand logo. Like any Romanian who lived under Ceausescu, no matter how young they were at the time. And no matter where they live now, Every Romanian has a kitchen drawer full of plastic bags. Like, it's in our DNA. <laughs> it's ingrained in us because we had to save, like, people saved nice-looking shopping bags as they're kind of a status symbol under Ceausescu's regime because you couldn't get them. You couldn't get anything from the West. Now, obviously, I use the plastic bags I save, like any grocery plastic bag, frankly, for the cat's poop. And 
to reduce polluting the planet. So I don't throw away plastic bags. I try to recycle by reusing them however I can. Now, this whole plastic bag situation is so weird to understand. I mean, looking back, it's surreal. <laughs> but I mean, look, almost everything was banned. You know, certain books, but most real non-propaganda books were banned. Jeans were banned. Traveling outside the country was banned. Talking to foreigners was banned. Having foreign currency or, you know, watching porn, that was banned too. Being gay, being gay was definitely banned. Divorce was kind of banned. It was made very hard to obtain a divorce. There were legal roadblocks, very similar to covenant marriages in U.S. red states, like Mike Johnson's uh, marriage, the Republican Speaker of the House. Now, we didn't have a covenant porn control app like Speaker Johnson and his son have, because the tech didn't exist at the time, but I'm sure Ceausescu would have loved the idea. <laughs> we also didn't have electricity and hot water all the time, or actual free speech or a free press. So there'll be a lot of such stories with concrete examples for my early life in this episode, like how my dad, uh, as I mentioned earlier, who was a doctor, helped women get safe abortions by putting them in contact with trusted OBGYN colleagues of his, which was obviously illegal. Plus, we're going to talk. I mean, I'll talk. <laughs> and hopefully you guys will listen to this episode, even though it's just me this time. I'll talk about why a Trump regime would be much more dangerous than previous totalitarian regimes in other parts of the world. We are in a completely different reality in 2023-2024. Trump's position is already that he never swore an oath to support the Constitution, despite the fact that we've all seen him take his oath of office at his inauguration. We'll get to this as well. If Trump wins, his presidency will be a tech-fueled rule, a China-like surveillance state, but worse. Also, we'll discuss the geopolitical implications of a Trump 2.0 presidency, so brace yourselves because this is going to be one crazy ride. So let's start with Orange Jesus. <laughs> Not the Orange Christ, that is an actual art piece, a picture at the Cleveland Museum of Art by French painter Maurice Denis, but it doesn't depict Trump. It's a very skinny orange figure on a cross, so definitely not him. <laughs> Okay, so orange Jesus is a term coined not by the Democrats, but by Republicans themselves. In her new book entitled Oath and Honor, former Representative Liz Cheney, who's also, by the way, a Republican from Wyoming, she describes a scene in which a fellow House member called former President Trump orange Jesus. Cheney says that while in the GOP cloakroom in the Capitol on January 6, 2021, Members were uh, encouraged to sign on to electoral vote objection sheets. And this is what she says. Among them was Republican Congressman Mark Green of Tennessee. As he moved down the line, signing his name to the pieces of paper, Green said cheaplishly to no one in particular, the things we do for Orange Jesus. Now, the book is not out yet. It will be available on December 5, but we know this and the fact that Trump threw a fit and stopped eating after his failed coup because media outlets received advanced copies. And I think it's important to highlight one thing here. This incident clearly shows that the Republican Party knows what Trump is, how dangerous he is, and they know that his evangelical followers have been 
radicalized. It's a cult, hence the Jesus reference. This is a man who will not give up power again. He half joked about being president for life, and yet the GOP still backs him, embraces him, despite all the criminal charges, 91 criminal charges to be exact, despite the rape allegations, the corruption, and the many, many, many instances where his speeches incited actual violence. People died because of this man. I mean, not to mention the millions of people, by the way, who died of COVID because they refused to vaccinate. As Trump told them, the virus is a hoax. I won't get into all of that. Anyone not living under a rock knows this stuff. The point I'm trying to make is that we find ourselves at a critical juncture. This is a moment in time when, despite one's political views, we must come together to avoid a totalitarian demagogue like Trump getting anywhere near the White House again. Real Republicans, like, you know, Bush, Cheney, I can't believe I'm using the Cheneys as a positive example, actually. Like, but real Republicans understand the danger. The rest of the GOP is unfortunately more interested in keeping their positions and the money flow intact, and also they are afraid of violence against themselves and their families from Trump's radicalized supporters. Some GOP members said as much. In a sense, the GOP is being held hostage by Trump. So, this situation we're in, what's at stake, this goes beyond party lines. Any person whose allegiance is to the United States should think about how they're going to vote because any vote that's not for Biden, any third party vote is implicitly a vote for Trump. Not voting at all is also a vote for Trump as it helps Trump. And I have two quotes here to illustrate this idea. If you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. Desmond Tutu said this. And also, another quote, here it goes, there comes a time where silence is betrayal. Martin Luther King. Whatever your feelings about Biden might be, me personally, I love him. I do not care that he's old. When I hear this old thing, I really get very annoyed. Like, wake up, people. Trump is 78 and Biden is 81. It's not like Trump is a spring chicken. And just recently at his rallies, on many occasions, Trump thought Obama is still president. It happened seven times recently. So is he compost mentis? No. Anyway, look, age is not a thing here. We must look at the experience and results in office. We have the strongest, best recovering economy in the world, okay, after the pandemic. And it's all thanks to Biden. That's fact. In fairness, anyone, literally any average person with common sense, would be a better president than Trump. A person in a coma would be a better, safer president than Trump. And this is not a partisan point of view. If this election would be about Bush against Biden, I wouldn't be doing this episode. And trust me, I'm not the biggest Bush fan. This is no longer about whether we love Biden or not, whether he's our dream candidate. It's about whether we want to ever have free elections again. The I'm not voting crowd needs to understand that if they don't vote in the 2024 presidential elections, they choose to not have a voice from there on out. It's like a self-inflicted perpetual gag slash muzzle. <laughs> like they will not be able to ever vote again. I don't get the reasoning behind that. But anyway, 
where I was going with this train of thought, before we get to some of those personal stories from my childhood under Ceausescu's dictatorship, is that when I became an American citizen, I took an oath of allegiance to the United States. And among other things, it contained these words. I hereby declare on oath that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Now, I don't have many more tools at my disposal to defend the Constitution than any of us, other than my right to vote, social media to fight disinformation, volunteering for the right causes and campaigns, which I've done and I will do whenever I can, and this podcast. But believe you me, I'm planning to use these tools to the best of my ability. Oh, and about voting, one more thing. I look at it not only as a right, but a privilege and a civic duty. People have died, so we can vote. And democracy is not a spectator game. If we like freedom, we gotta vote. But look, after living here for so long, I mean, I'm not gonna lie, I feel more American by far than I feel Romanian. My life is here, everything I know now is here. So I really needed to do this episode and share some personal stories, guys, as I said, and try to do my part to ensure that I'm abiding by that oath I took. As I said, mine is not a partisan position. I would say I'm actually an independent. This is truly not about party politics. It's about preserving the democratic values and our constitution. I lived under a dictatorship once in Ceausescu's socialist slash communist Romania. I do not want to live under a second dictatorship here in America. Thank you very much. So on to some analogies between what dictators do, what Nicolae Ceausescu did in Romania, and what Trump started already to do here. Ceausescu got elected in 1965. By the way, he ruled for 24 years and he was never gonna leave, but the people took him down with the 1989 revolution. So right off the bat, that's the first similarity, I guess, that needs to be drawn here. Trump alluded to being president for life. We saw he didn't want to honor the peaceful transfer of power once he lost the election. He tried to hold on to power by any means, including violence and including turning against his own people like Mike Pence. I mean, he riled those crowds at the Capitol to be wild. Those people built a scaffold with an actual rope ready for Mike Pence and they were chanting, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence. Trump did everything he could to stop the counting of the electoral votes. So that's one similarity that all despots, all dictators share. Once they get into power, they do not want to relinquish that power. That's common trait number one. So if anyone out there still hasn't made up their mind on whether Trump wants a democracy or a for-life rule, think about that because January 6th, it's the moment when all the red flags went up and all the dubimeter alarms started sounding, or should have, for most Americans. To be honest, my personal <laughs> dubimeter alarm started sounding since 2015 when he said he's gonna run for president. I mean, I posted about it on Facebook. It, it was so very clear from the start that he has all the trademarks of a despot. Anyway, let's get to the other things Ceausescu did once in power. He banned certain books. Most books by foreign authors were completely removed. Like you couldn't find them in library. You couldn't buy them, right? Like there were no books by foreign authors. Romanian authors who didn't comply with the censorship requirements and refused to write what they were ordered to 
they were sent to forced labor camps, like the Danube Black Sea Canal building site. The construction of the canal started in 1984, and to this day, we do not know the exact numbers of dissidents and intellectuals who perished there. All these people were called enemies of the state. But about books, I specifically remember my mom cutting book covers from approved readings, right? And gluing those book covers on books she had obtained on the black market, so to speak. Or, you know, on older books that we had in the family, but they were forbidden. Because our little library area was in the living room, you know, so whenever we had guests, it was important they wouldn't see any books that were banned. Because, in fairness, we didn't know who was like a normal person and who was a communist snitch. There was also the option of wrapping paper, but you could only do that with a few books because if you had a library full of books wrapped in paper, that would have looked fishy, right? So... <laughs> Banning books is similarity number two between Ceausescu's regime and the GOP's uh, Trump dystopian future that we face if he gets in power again. I mean, they've already started banning books here in the United States. It's insane. And for those people thinking it can't happen here, we have a constitution, we have checks and balances, yes, it can. It can happen here and it will if we let it happen. Italy had a constitution before Mussolini, Germany had a constitution before Hitler, and Romania had a constitution before Ceausescu too. Romania was a thriving modern country. Bucharest was called Little Paris before communism. We had a vibrant culture, and poets, and artists, and so on, like inventors and scientists, and we were a touristic destination, and royalty from all over Europe came to Romania on vacation. Ceausescu ruined all of that. By the way, there's a book by Sinclair Lewis. It's entitled, It Can't Happen Here. I highly recommend it. If it's not banned, it will be soon. So, <laughs> And look, if you told me five years ago that Roe v. Wade would be overturned, I would have laughed. But here we are. So it can actually happen here. And it's already started. Like, this is how it works. They come into power and they amend and maim the constitution to fit their will. Look at Putin, who, by the way, Trump admires very much. Putin changed the Russian constitution, I think, two or three times, so that he can be in power still. He's been in power, guys, since 1999, 2000? Basically, New Year's Eve 1999. For 23 years, he's been in power. And he did that by picking at nuances and wording in the legal texts of the Constitution and basically clawing at and eroding the letter of the law while disorienting uh, and misinforming and manipulating the population. And guess what? Trump is doing the same now. He's working on it. He says he never swore an oath to support the Constitution. No, I do not. Trump's lawyers, in their appeal against the Colorado lawsuit, reiterated that the wording of the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment does not apply to people running for president, and that Trump technically did not swear an oath to support the Constitution. Instead, during his January 2017 inauguration, Trump swore to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. Insanity. It's insane. I mean, we're picking at words and trying to make things seem like 
what they're not. I think we can all agree this is beyond ridiculous. Now, just to put this into context, most of my memories, by the way, and the stories I'll be telling here are a combination of what I actually remember and things I know from my family. For example, Ceausescu destroyed and muzzled the free press. I personally was a child because I'm young, by the way, I'm still a millennial. So, but yeah, I do not remember that per se, but it is a historical fact. So you can check that. And I know that just like other writers and authors, a lot of journalists were arrested by the security services, never to be seen again. Only the ones who agreed to spew party-approved propaganda were allowed to work. And here's yet another similarity, the third one, between Ceausescu's regime and Trump, their hate for the free press. Remember when he had Jorge Ramos, America's best-known Latino journalist, kicked out from the White House press pool in the middle of a press conference? So, during the Ceausescu regime, a lot of regular people, too, got disappeared, so to speak, or arrested or beaten. Like, I remember this. We had a neighbor. He lived on the fourth floor. We were on the sixth. And he was arrested. Rumor had it he had pornographic materials, like videotapes and magazines smuggled in from the West. You know, like any normal guy would have, right? I mean, but it was forbidden. Like, just imagine how insane life was. You never knew who you can trust and who would snitch on you. Some people snitched even on family members and close friends out of desperation and poverty because they could get certain advantages like a promotion or something if they snitched. And also people made up lies about other people just to get ahead uh, or get an extra pound of meat because, by the way, food was not in abundance. There were rations, like in any isolationist system. This is the thing. Extractive systems will always reach a point where resources become scarce and the economy collapses. And isolationism is Trump's policy. He wants us out of NATO, out of trade agreements we have with allies, out of the Paris Climate Accord. Basically, he wants us out of all alliances, commercial or otherwise, that we have. And by the way, he already removed us from the Paris Climate Accord, but, you know, Biden put us back in. So Trump basically wants a return to coal and old polluting methods like fracking and gas and oil extraction. And that would destroy our economy. We can't go back in time while the world moves forward. So here we go. That's similarity number four between Ceausescu's dictatorship and Trump's views. An isolationist approach, right? Because Romania, during Ceausescu, also only had commercial relations with very, very few countries that had aligning views. But about food in communist Romania, I remember, this is kind of funny, but also not. I remember how I stayed in line at the grocery store. It was called Alimentaro. So we go and stay in line at the Alimentaro for hours to get oranges or butter which were delicacies, by the way, and very hard to come by. And I remember how me and my friends made like little groups and we banded together and we pretended to be siblings because that way we'd each get more and we'd go to different stores and stay in line over and over again at each store because, you know, that way we could get like more oranges. So we each took home more stuff for our families. Another thing, there was a limit per person, right? So you couldn't buy let's say, I, I think it was 
one kilogram of meat per family like and you could not like only one person like if one person from that family would buy it then you couldn't send your wife or your child right that's why we did the thing where we went to different stores and <laughs> and also we were children so it was easier to bamboozle the people behind the counter right now in fairness i think the ladies uh, you know the the alimentara workers I think they kind of knew what we were doing, at least some of them, but we were kids and meh, I don't know, it worked. Now, the whole situation with the butter and the oranges, look, uh, like, I'm not saying that will happen in the United States, uh, at least not in the first five to ten years of a dictatorship. It's because our economy is very strong, it's going to take a long time for us to get to that point, but it's not impossible, it's what I'm trying to say. But this isolationist view inevitably leads there in one way or another now the abortion ban like any respectable dictator and socialist leader Ceausescu banned abortions and birth control too guess what happened next this episode is sponsored by better help you know what i always say right you can't ignore your trauma and hope it disappears. The only way forward is to deal with it. Life keeps throwing curveballs at all of us. Fireballs, spitballs, too many balls. And when you're overwhelmed, you're not at your best and it affects your interactions with the people you care about. So how do you deal with it all? Call your therapist like I do. Yes, you be friends, I'm a better help, happy customer, been using their services since way before we even started this podcast. I can attest to the fact that Sandra is now, let's say, a much lovelier person to be around. <laughs> oh, shut up. Also, my therapist will love hearing that. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 25,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, it's affordable, it's flexible, and most importantly, it's entirely online. And you'll get 10% off your first month if you sign up at betterhelp.com dubious. Yes, and then you can talk to your therapist whenever and however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. So do yourself a favor, take care of your mental health, because when you feel empowered, you are prepared to take on everything life throws at you. Visit betterhelp.com slash dubious to get 10% off your first month or click the link in the episode notes. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash dubious. Disaster happened. From 1966-67 when abortion was banned until the Romanian Revolution in 1989 when we got rid of Ceausescu, so for over two decades. Hundreds of thousands of women died in unsafe coat hanger back alley procedures. Hundreds of thousands of unwanted kids ended up in orphanages. And in the beginning, the social services system, as as it was, held for a while, until it didn't. So then, many kids ended up in the street, in gangs, where they would be physically mutilated on purpose so that they can be used to beg for money at street corners and make a profit for their quote-unquote owners. That's where it got to. This abortion ban is one of the biggest tragedies that happened to my country, overflooding a system that was already weak and not well-founded. The orphanages were full, abuse was at its peak in those places, 
And you might think that the United States is much better positioned to deal with the wave of babies, unwanted babies. Well, you're wrong. Just watch The Trials of Gabriel Fernandez on Netflix. It's a good documentary about the failures of the system. And like any system, ours will hold for a while until it won't. Not to mention the horror stories of American women already in deathly danger because they have a dead fetus inside them, but removing it is medically considered an abortion, so doctors are watching helplessly as women get in septic shock. It is insane. We already did an episode entitled Forced Pregnancy, and we explained how banning abortions is uh, considered by the United Nations a crime against humanity. And look, people don't realize the extent to which abortion bans affect the whole of society. I don't know how many people remember those images of Romanian orphanages that came out after the revolution. The immense numbers of women who already had like three, four, five children and simply couldn't afford to have more. Like, you know, those women, it's not that nobody wants to kill babies, okay? Women don't want to kill their babies, but Sometimes you're too young or you've been raped. Or, I mean, I don't have to explain this, but those women tried to get an abortion. They couldn't get a safe one. And some of them died and left their three, four children orphans. These children and unwanted, abandoned children filled the streets of my country, like I said, way into the 1990s. There was no place left anymore in orphanages. There was no space, so they were living on the streets, abused and taken advantage of, maimed and used as ways to make profit. Some took to a life of crime because when, you know, like when you have no options, like you, you do what you have to do. What were they? I mean, they had no, no choice. Some of them robbed people. I mean, it was crazy. And Ceausescu pretended this was not happening. Like, these problems didn't exist. These tragedies you saw at every corner were not a thing. People became desensitized. Because if you keep seeing this pain and suffering every single day, it becomes easier, really, to look the other way. Like, you get used to it. I remember seeing many, many children begging in subway stations, train stations, everywhere. I mean, I wasn't even faced. It was, I don't know what to say, like, that's how people live. That's what happens. And also, you could only give money to so many, right? Anyway, it was heartbreaking. And I have another personal story here. My dad was a thoracic surgeon, and naturally, he had OBGYN friends, as all doctors do. Like, you know, you know people. And if women in my mom's or his circle would discreetly inquire for a recommendation to find a trusted medical professional to perform an abortion procedure, and avoid going to a butcher. That's how the back alley abortion people were called, okay? So you can imagine. My dad would direct this women to certain colleagues he knew that were willing to help. Obviously, it was all hush-hush, cloak and dagger, so to speak, and done in secret, because they could all go to prison and lose their medical license for doing that. But I do remember that at one point, my dad was, well, not arrested, but I guess taken in for questioning. And I think somebody snitched because this is how the state managed to enforce the abortion ban so successfully, among other things. In all totalitarian regimes, people are slowly manipulated, brainwashed through propaganda, and it works. It works even better on the less educated or the very desperate people, right? That's why Republicans ban books and don't want free college education. It's hard to sell nonsense to educated people. That's why they say that the pro-choice women are 
overeducated. As if that's an actual thing. As if overeducated exists. It doesn't. It's the same old totalitarian playbook and they're dressing this all up in like freedom, democracy, when it's the exact opposite. I mean, there were abortion doctors that were shot here in the United States by the right-wing crazies. We didn't have that in Romania because people in civilized countries don't have guns and Romania, just like all European countries and like Japan, South Korea and so on, had at the time, thank the universe, a proud tradition of no mass shootings and gun worshipping. But yes, in my dad's case, someone snitched and he was gone for a few days, taken by the Securitate, the security services, and when he came back home, I do remember he looked terrible, he had lost some weight, and I didn't understand much at the time, but my mom told me the whole story later. It was apparently, but nobody knows 100%, a janitor at the hospital who snitched, probably to get some extra food cards or maybe a bigger salary, you know, out of desperation. That's what extractive isolationist systems do. They divide people and turn them against each other as, you know, like, like weapons. You know, divide et impera, divide and conquer. Uh, same thing, right? They turn people against each other so that they can manipulate all of us. And the less educated one is, the more susceptible to disinformation and propaganda one becomes. One extra little thing here for clarity, an extractive system means extractive institutions, while extractive isolationist systems do tend to use less modern green tech and they rely more on polluting and backwards methods like fracking and coal extraction and so on. Extractive institutions, that term means something else. Extractive institutions and economies are those which are set up to provide benefit to a select elite, while basically ripping the average people off, extracting wealth from them. This is in contrast to inclusive institutions which are set up for the benefit of all or most of the population, you know, like free healthcare, free education. So democracies in general have inclusive institutions and autocracies have extractive ones. There's a great book called Why Nations Fail by Deren Asemoglu and James A. Robinson. It's really a must read, could not recommend it more. A specific example in the book is the difference between North and South Korea. Because of their different institutions, uh, such as the rule of law and private property rights, South Korea, for example, has a thriving economy while North Koreans are barely surviving. As the Kim dynasty set up isolationist extractive institutions to enrich themselves at the expense of the population. Anyway, as I said, my dad and I think several of his colleagues were all questioned, but none went to prison because the truth is, medical personnel in all disciplines was needed, and also I think the hospital director had connections in the party and kind of intervened and explained he needs his doctors back, basically. There was also the matter of how many doctors and intellectuals can you put in jail or send to forced labor camps before the entire medical system collapses completely. But I know it was very scary for my mom, and I also know my dad and his OBGYN buddies kind of like took a break, but then kept doing the same thing, you know, helping women, but taking more precautions. That's what I remember people saying at my dad's funeral. He passed away sadly, and also I don't want to talk about it because I can't. But then uh, after being questioned after a while, months later, because they were still doing the same thing, my dad was uh, a punishment, I guess, and to break this whole, you know, doctor's uh, 
group they had where they helped women have abortions, he was relocated to another hospital uh, outside the city. So it was like quite a long drive to get there. And because he couldn't come home after work every day, this put a strain on my parents' marriage. So the abortion ban is similarity number five between Ceausescu's dictatorship and the GOP Trump political agenda. And let me shock you some more. Ceausescu even increased taxes on childlessness and unmarried persons, mostly women. These people had to pay a special tax. But let's not give Republicans more bad ideas. I mean, can you imagine? If you didn't have children, you had to pay a tax. <laughs> but here's a good idea. Dear listeners, you can claim all our episodes ad-free if you become patrons. This is the simplest way you can support Dubious. And as you know, because we harass you with this info every episode, we are an independent podcast. We have no team. There are no editors, sound designers, researchers, and so on. It's just Tyler and I. Well, not today. Today is just me. <laughs> but in general, and we are doing our best every week to bring you the best content. We work on this podcast in our free time on nights and weekends, and sometimes even when we are at our regular jobs during work hours. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. So if you want to support us, please become a patron on dubiouspot.com or by clicking the link in the episode notes right here in the app you're listening to us in. It's cheaper than a fancy cup of tea, and you will get all our content ad-free, and you won't be bothered by ads anymore and if you want to support us in a different way you can always leave us a nice five-star review on apple i love seeing your reviews there and it helps the algorithm to show our podcast to other people who might like the type of content we do okay that's it back to our story ceausescu also made divorce really difficult to get which obviously worked wonderfully i guess for men in general not so much for the women caught in violent and abusive relationships and of course, drumroll please, he criminalized same-sex relationships. Of course, all the Republican wet dreams are what the dictators of the world have done in socialist communist countries. So criminalizing being gay or transgender or anything other than straight, that's similarity number six between Ceausescu's socialist Romania and what Trump's GOP wants to do here. And before I forget to make this point, uh, let me make it now. When they tell us Democrats are socialists, I'm like, nah, nah, mate, the real socialists and communists are the GOP. Giving people affordable health care and not cutting their social security and Medicare and Medicaid and so on, that's not socialism. That's called living in a civilized society. In a civilized country like, you know, Canada, France, Denmark, Norway, the UK, where healthcare is free or almost free, and cancer patients don't have to organize GoFundMes to survive another month. Banning abortions, criminalizing being gay, taking rights away from people and everything else the GOP is doing. Now that's what totalitarian socialist and communist regimes do. And here we get to similarity number seven, turning truth on its head, making black into white, presenting lies as truth and getting people killed in the process. Like when Trump said COVID is a hoax, and millions of Americans died because they wouldn't vaccinate. Dehumanizing people, political adversaries and minorities, and anyone who's not white and straight, this is also a common trait between Ceausescu's regime, who imprisoned and or killed all his political adversaries illegally and called them vermin and enemies of the state, and Trump calling his political adversaries vermin and vowing to get rid of them. 
not to mention his Mexicans are rapists, the whole China virus thing, which caused so many Asian people to get beaten in the streets, and some were even killed. Oh, the Muslim ban. This type of divisive and dehumanizing rhetoric is, you guessed it, similarity number eight. Now, I have another personal story. Uh, it's about how my grandfather died. And for context, when the Romanian Revolution happened, Nicolae Ceausescu and his wife Elena Ceausescu fled from the capital, Bucharest, first to Snagov, then to Târgoviște by helicopter, and were ordered to land by the army, which by that time had restricted flying in Romania's airspace. And they had joined the people, the army had joined the people, right? Ceausescu uh, and uh, his wife were then captured, sentenced to death, and killed on December 25th, Christmas Day 1989, after a very brief trial. Now, I think that was a mistake because that trial was not a fair trial, simply based on its duration. It only lasted hours, I think. The Ceausescus were rightfully accused, among other things, of illegal gathering of wealth and genocide. They were horrible people and inflicted horrific suffering on the country, and it took decades for Romania to recover and truly become democratic, uh, to shake off Russia and become part of the European Union and NATO. But I still think a thorough investigation should have been done there, especially to see in which accounts that stolen wealth was. Where was the money, right? I mean, this trial should have been done by the book. The truth is that there were still many people in the newly formed National Salvation Front, uh, Romania's provisional government, who had a big interest to shut down any investigation and fair trial because they probably had been involved in the corruption and crimes too. And they needed anyone who knew too much or saw things to keep their mouths shut, preferably forever. <laughs> in fairness, when totalitarian regimes are close to collapsing, those in power and close to power see it coming. They know. Sometimes those very close to the higher echelons of power switch sides long before the actual unrest starts, right? To save their own asses because those are the people who are connected to the security apparatus, which in totalitarian regimes is an oppressive arm of the government, always, no exception. My grandfather on my dad's side, Stefan, Stefan, I guess in English, was his name, started working as a hotel clerk when he was young, before the communists came to power, and then by the end of his career in 1988, he had become like a hotel director within the UGSR, uh, the General Union of Romanian Syndicates, which functioned within the Socialist Party, because nothing functioned outside of it, okay? Now, you might wonder, well, why your grandfather, unless he was a bad person, why would he work for the Socialist Party? Because everyone was. Like, what I mean is, nobody worked not for the party. There was no other type of jobs other than for the party. Like, all the jobs in existence were given and overseen by the party. When people say big brother and stuff, that's how it was. Everything was like in Gilead, under his eye. <laughs> the people who did not have jobs, even though officially unemployment did not exist in socialist Romania, okay? Orphans did not exist. Nothing bad existed officially, including serial killers, okay? <laughs> officially, we didn't have any, even though we actually had a guy called the Vampire of Bucharest, and he would attack women with an axe. 
so they bled out. So their bodies were practically exsanguinated and the police were not investigating his murders as connected because the socialist dogma was so perfect that it couldn't possibly produce serial killers in their minds. But back to the job situation. The people who did not have jobs or were unemployable were considered faulty and therefore were undesirables, like enemies of the state, and you get the gist of where they would be sent if they failed to somehow either get a job from the party or perform well in their party-assigned jobs. Well, they were sent to forced labor camps or just in prison. Anyway, in his role as resort hotel director in the central UGSR HQ in Bucharest, my grandfather kind of saw like all the big names, the important people coming and going. That's where the party higher-ups met for drinks and meetings, official and unofficial. That's where official foreign delegations were received and accommodated and so on. The point is, he probably saw some stuff he shouldn't have or witnessed conversations that he shouldn't have known about. My suspicion is he saw some of the people that came to power after the Ceausescu regime and he saw them there and could draw some connections that would have been uncomfortable for the new government which let's say was not fully staffed with very democratic figures. Like Romania's transition from full-blown socialism, communism, to democracy, to the democracy we finally have now, as far as corruption at least, was a gradient, right? From very black to dark gray to light gray and so on. You know, so the first people that came to power after the revolution were not really spotless by far. And then it kind of like, because of the regulations for us to that we had to reach to adhere the uh, European Union and because we had to reach all these milestones corruption was slowly uh, seeped out and you know gotten rid of but initially while a democratic country after the revolution the corruption was still flourishing with the first you know president and party that was in power then the point is finally Romania now has a good president Klaus Johannes and things are as okay as they can be it's still about fighting Russian interference and disinformation. That's ongoing. Anyway, long story short, in 1988, months before the revolution, my grandfather got suddenly sick. He fell ill. Now, keep in mind, this was a guy who didn't smoke, didn't drink. He was healthy as a horse, six feet tall, 65 years old, in super good shape. Within the week, so we are talking days here. Within the week, he needed a cane to walk. I know because I was with him and my grandmother on vacation in his native village, where my cousins and extended family still live, and we had to immediately return to Bucharest to take him to specialists and stuff. And two weeks later, maybe two weeks and a half later, he was dead. So he went from perfectly healthy to dead within three, three and a half weeks. The diagnosis was advanced neoplasm, metastasized. Now look, I'm not one for conspiracies, so as much as I loved my grandfather so far, like if you look at the story so far, nothing that weird. Cancer can be very aggressive and move really, really fast, even though three weeks and a half is a bit too fast, but you know, it, it's not unheard of, right? But what happened next is crazy. His assistant, his secretary, Ioana, she died of generalized cancer too like shortly afterwards. And by shortly, I mean like a month. And my grandfather's counterpart was also his friend, the director of the Black Sea UGSR hotel complex, 
also died of generalized cancer within the month. And I think his secretary got sick too, but that one somehow survived. I'll explain a bit more. So the Euphoria North Black Sea Resort complex was for Romanian dignitaries in communism, like what Sochi is for Putin and his entourage, right? In the winter, all the party's top people hanged out at the Bucharest location, the one oversaw by my grandfather, and in the summer, they went to the Black Sea one oversaw by my grandfather's friend. They were friends, by the way, because of work. It's not like they knew each other or something before, but like, they were friendly. And without getting into too much morbid detail, I do remember my grandmother and my parents not wanting to let me near my grandfather's body. At the time, I didn't really understand, okay? I was young. I didn't know what was going on and why I can't kiss him because I want him to give him a kiss and they wouldn't let me, right? So I also remember thinking he was asleep and I thought that if I give him a kiss, he would wake up. But when I grew up, my parents told me that the medical examiner who did the, my grandfather's embalming also uh, told my dad that his organs were liquefied and that it was so highly unusual that my dad actually kind of like requested to see for himself and the common but unspoken conclusion the accepted conclusion was that there was something more than just random cancer here anyway my grandmother was convinced and my family is convinced to this day that there was some kind of radiation poisoning involved or some type of heavy metals poisoning or foul play but it's it's not like you could do any investigations or go to the police I mean, this was before the revolution, right Right before. Things were very volatile anyway. And now I know this theory seems a bit, it could for other people seem far-fetched, but the SRI, the Romanian intelligence services, uh, initially designed after the French intelligence services, were then under socialism redesigned and trained on the KGB model. And the KGB, currently FSB, if is anything if not brazen with the radiation poisonings and nerve agent poisonings and they have been since their inception i mean think alexander litvinenko and alexei Navalny, right and the sri at the time operated at the pleasure of the party bosses plus we're talking four people who worked together in these positions where they saw and knew who's meeting who and they knew all the financial innings of these massive touristic gold mines. I mean, there are a lot of money in those estates, in those uh, touristic complexes. And generally, the party coffers had lots of money that magically disappeared right after the revolution. It's like the Ceausescu's took the money with them in the grave, <laughs> which obviously they haven't. Some other people got their claws on that wealth. Some people who didn't want loose ends and real investigations and so on. Obviously, maybe I'm connecting dots that don't exist here, but also maybe I'm not. <laughs> we are talking of billions, guys, billions. Not from the hotel results only. I'm talking in general, the personal accounts of the Ceausescu's, for example, right? Like two things we should retain here. Once the despots are gone, their money more often than not disappears without a trace. And two, all despots and their family members are corrupt to the bone. And we don't need to start rehashing all the instances of corruption and shady business practices within the Trump crime family, right? So here's similarity number nine, corruption. Now, a funny story to counterbalance, because uh, it's, been, it's been quite big so far. 
My grandfather's secretary, as we said, was Iwana, and her adult children, Simona and Dan, they were my godparents. Well, Simona was my godmother. And we had this ceremony in Romania for toddlers. That was the custom. So when their hair grows long enough, you do a cutting of the hair, family and friends event. It's called Tayera Motsului. It's like the first haircut, I guess, celebration. I don't know. Honestly, I think it's a pretext for the adults and the parents to get faced and party. <laughs> I mean, I hope my mom won't hear it, but, but honestly, that's what I think it is, because it makes no sense. And at this get-together, the godparents prepare a tray, and on this tray they put different objects, like scissors, a stethoscope, a book, a pen, a painting brush, money, and whatever objects representing certain professions or wealth in life. So, And then they ask the toddler to pick like one object, and depending on what the child picks, supposedly that's what their profession in life will be. According to my family, I didn't pick an object, I grabbed the whole tray. <laughs> I mean, was it an accurate prediction of my life? Yes and no, except the money part, because I'm broke as now, since this episode is about Orange Jesus, let's look at the religious element of the Ceausescu dictatorship. Officially, Socialist Romania was an atheist state. Let me tell you right now off the bat, that was bull****. The Orthodox Church was operating more or less undisturbed. In fact, priests were snitches for the security services. They would literally snitch on parishioners. Just like in Putin's Russia now, the Romanian Orthodox Church became richer than God during this time and worked hand in hand with those in power to control and manipulate the population and take the little money they had too. All demagogues and dictators use religion one way or another. Hitler told the crowd during a speech in October 1928, We tolerate no one in our ranks who attacks the ideas of Christianity. Our movement is Christian. Sounds familiar? <laughs> There's a f***ing reason why our founding fathers insisted on the separation of church and state. They knew despots will use religion to take power and never relinquish it. The whole idea of the creation of the United States was to get away from the British God-anointed kings who ruled for life. There's a reason why James Madison decided that the first words of the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights are Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So, no mixing lawmaking with religious BS that leads to stupid things like banning abortion and criminalizing homosexuality, which, by the way, the hate for LGBTQIA people, it comes from the Bible and the Quran. It comes from the Abrahamic religions. It didn't come out of nowhere upon us. And Another thing the Constitution also, I think, highlights is freedom of religion, of all religions, okay? It doesn't say Christianity. So everyone is free to worship however, whoever they want, as long as, you know, the law is respected and nobody else is hurt. And also very important, the First Amendment implies also freedom from religion. Like, if you want no part of it, that's perfect too. You're as valuable as the other people. Want to make a podcast like we do? 
Well, Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money. All in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Yes, guys, from your phone. You can be on the couch cutting with your pets. <laughs> and working on your podcast at the same time. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. And when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get people talking. With Spotify for podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free, no catch. Ever since we discovered Spotify for podcasters, we feel we finally have options, and you could too. You could do a video podcast and Q&A listener polls even. If you want to have your own podcast, we highly recommend you give Spotify for podcasters a try. Download the Spotify for podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com podcasters to get started. The United States is not a Christian country. We are a secular country. But that's not what the GOP wants. So anyway, here's another common element between dictatorships, even Kim Jong-un's and Trump's cultish movement. Like, this is similarity number 10, the use of religious dogma to radicalize and indoctrinate your followers. I mean, look at the photos of Trump and Jesus that the Republicans share online. It's, I mean, it's like, Scary 99%, but also funny 1%. There's one photo they love to share uh, with Jesus behind Trump, uh, and Jesus is holding his hand on Trump's shoulder, but it's actually Charles Manson dressed like Jesus. <laughs> Somebody made that as a joke, but they didn't get it. <laughs> so long story short, no totalitarian regime is truly atheist. None. This is a major misconception. Look at Romania under Ceausescu, at Germany under Hitler, even at North Korea now. People there look at the Kim dynasty as if they are demigods. We talked about this in detail in another episode. Kim Jong-un's grandfather was actually born in the Gulag in Siberia, but North Koreans were taught to believe that he was born on their most sacred mountaintop, and the rainbow appeared uh, when he was born, and the birds started to sing. And that night, the stars guided three shepherds to baby Kim, and uh, they brought him gifts. Sounds familiar? Like, that's a Christian leitmotif right there. It's insanity. People also thought that the Kims don't really defecate, you know, like, because being a god, you don't really poop. I'm not joking. So when people say North Korea is atheist, I'm like, meh, I mean... Officially, yeah, but really, they have a mix of Confucianism and weird bits and pieces of religious motifs from other cultures as well. And they have the cult of personality, of course, which is, you guessed it, similarity number 11. And it's all mixed together with the worshipping of idols, like those massive statues of the kings, their photos in every room of every building and so on. So, are we surprised that Orange Jesus uses religion to manipulate and control his people? Are we surprised that his people went to the capital and tried to kill his own vice president and the elected officials who were counting electoral votes? Like Voltaire said, those who believe absurdities commit atrocities. 
And if these people are many, as they are, we are in trouble. Like George Carlin said, don't underestimate stupid people in large groups. <laughs> now, back to Ceausescu and Trump. Ceausescu visited China and North Korea in 1971 and came back with this megalomaniac desire to have hundreds of thousands of people shouting his name. From then on, these massive and complex parades became national compulsory entertainment for which people arrived in busloads from all over Romania. Not because they wanted, it was because your job obliged you to go. Like they would literally line you up and put you on the bus. Okay, nobody was exempt unless you're in hospital or something. Or else you'd face consequences like pay cuts or even losing your job, which was a very slippery slope because then you could eventually end up like in a work camp. Children were obliged to participate. Elementary school kids were called pioneers and the older kids were called eagles. Insanity. <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you. And we had special uniforms. I didn't get to wear the patriotic eagles one with the red scarf because the revolution happened. And I mean, between you and me, at the time, I mean, imagine, I was, I was a, a small child, but I really looked up to the eagles. <laughs> like, I really wanted, I couldn't wait to become an eagle. <laughs> anyway, and the military part of the parade was very important too, right? It wasn't just people and stuff. It was like the tanks and this arm of the military would show off their latest whatever weapons. And I mean, everybody was marching in tandem. It was very complex, okay? Very intricate. So, parades. Who else loves and requested huge military parades in Washington? Orange Jesus. So, similarity number 12, parades. Other similarities between Ceausescu and what Trump intends to do or already started to do in his last term Political repression, like throwing your adversaries into prison without any legal base for fair trial, human rights violations, banning abortion. As we said, that's considered a crime against humanity by the United Nations. And there is literally no civilized nation on the face of the planet where abortion is banned, except us. Like even Afghanistan, under the Taliban rule, allows women to get dead fetuses out of their bodies and avoid septicemia and death. Afghanistan under Taliban rules is more evolved than southern like states like Texas or Mississippi or like, ooh. Now, other similarities, genocide. It generally starts with dehumanizing of certain groups. There are 10 stages of genocide. Dehumanization is stage four. The vermin, Nazi-inspired language, that Trump uses is just that. And then we have mass surveillance system used to monitor every person and, you know, limited freedom of movement too. By the way, that's important because in Texas, Trump's GOP wants to make it so that women cannot travel outside the state to get abortions. That is limited freedom of movement in a surveillance state. Frankly, the list of similarities is endless and we could go on forever. But just to recap, here are the common traits we identified between Ceausescu or dictators in general and Orange Jesus. Refusal to relinquish power. No free press, censorship, propaganda, and disinformation. Isolationism. Abortion bans. Criminalizing homosexuality. Turning truth on its head. Dehumanizing rhetoric usually leads to genocide in the end. Massive corruption. 
the use of religion or religious elements to manipulate, radicalize, and control people. Mass surveillance systems, the cult of personality, grandiose parades, political repression. Scared yet? <sighs> I feel like I need a shower just thinking about this, like it makes my skin crawl. Just think about what will happen if we allow this to unfold, if we allow another Trump presidency and about showers and totally unrelated but this reminds me of a funny story as i said western products were very hard to come by in socialist romania so when you had a good shampoo or a pair of jeans or a perfume that didn't smell like moths or something or even coffee oh my god there was a massive shortage of real coffee we had something called nekezol it tasted like soak water <laughs> i don't know but anyway good bars of soap that smelled nice were rare and there were foreign brands like palmolive or lux and there was an incident with a piglet eating a soap at the outdoor showers and it was like a very quote-unquote valuable soap it was one of the good ones <laughs> anyway the best part the piglet was just fine no side effects but i just remember like how how that was a thing like that was an event Anyway, as far as I'm concerned, Donald Trump is the biggest danger to not only the United States, but to the world in 2024 and on. And The Economist actually published an article entitled Donald Trump Poses the Biggest Danger to the World in 2024. We'll link it in the episode notes. It's a really good read and I recommend you guys take a look uh, as we don't have much time left to go through all the geopolitical implications of a second Trump term. But in a nutshell, what we need to retain is that Trump version 2 will be much more dangerous than Trump version 1 was. There will be no more adults in the room. There's going to be no more general millies and so on. So if he gets elected, he will never ever relinquish power again. He will surround himself with yes people. And there will be no Mike Pence again to say no like I'm actually going to do my duty and participate in the counting and validate the counting of the electoral votes. By the way, it was touch and go there. Mike Pence didn't want to do that. He didn't want to go to the Capitol that day, right? Because of what Trump has said, that, oh, let's see if Mike Pence has the courage to do what's right. Pence was scared. He considered not doing his duty required by the Constitution because he was scared of Trump. So let's not praise him too much. The reason he actually went to the Capitol was because his son, who is a Marine, told him, look, Dad, we both took an oath to protect the Constitution. You really got to go and validate this election because the people elected Biden. And that's why Pence went in the end. The point is, if he gets elected, Trump will never, ever relinquish power. Putin uh, would literally have parades in Moscow to celebrate. And by the way, the last time Trump won, Kremlin insiders were saying staffers were popping champagne. I mean, I can see it. <laughs> I can see it. But on a more serious note, the danger of conflict with China, for example, and an escalation of such conflicts into a full-blown World War III is not out of the question with Trump in charge. I mean, the implications on a global scale would be huge with him as a president. Again, don't forget, it would mean getting us out of all the agreements with allies we have, destroying diplomatic relationships that we have built over decades. It's, I, it's too much to even pack into one episode. So 
Look, this article that I was telling you about in The Economist makes a very good point. Quote, a second Trump term would be a watershed in a way the first was not. Victory would confirm his most destructive instincts about power. His plans would encounter less resistance. And because America will have voted him in while knowing the worst, its moral authority would decline. The election will be decided by tens of thousands of voters in just a handful of states. In 2024, the fate of the world will depend on their ballots. And look, I know I'll never change the minds of the Trump supporters, but if somehow at this point there are still undecided people out there, or I'm neutral, I do not care about politics, and I don't vote people out there, well, especially the neutral crowd, beware. There will be a point in time when, if you're not with them, you're against them. That's how totalitarian regimes work. Neutrality will not be an option anymore. You will be in the same group as the ones who oppose the regime, with the dissidents, right? If you want to have the luxury of being neutral in the future, again, you must vote now. For Biden, not third-party candidates or other Kremlin puppets. It's not about whether we like Biden. It's about whether we like democracy. So this episode, we can't do a dubimeter level. I can't do a dubimeter level. We usually rate, uh, Tyler and I, the dubiousness of the facts discussed on a scale from 1 to 10. But but I'm not going to be giving a mark to my own you know, stories and memories and my own uh, ideas. That would be very narcissistic. So if you guys want to let me know how and if you like this episode, please leave a five-star Apple review. That would help a lot. I mean, hopefully you really like the episode. That's it, Yubi friends. If you enjoyed this, please recommend UBS to your friends and family. You know what I always say, personal recommendations are the best recommendations. We are at Dubious Pod on all social media. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next week. We love you, Dubi friends. And don't forget, vote and stay dubious.